G'day everyone, it's Joe here, welcoming you to the third episode of X-Band, the internet's only fandom podcast. Uh, this episode ended up going for quite a long time because when you're looking at a publisher that has lasted as many years as Fru has, there tends to be a lot to discuss. So we decided to uh, break this episode up into two halves. This first half will be looking at the history of Fru publications, so I hope you enjoy it and come back for part two in a few days' time. Hello folks and welcome to the third episode of the X-Band, the world's only fandom podcast. Uh, with me again today I've got Jermaine Parker. Say it, g'day to everyone Jermaine. How you going everyone? Joe, how you going? I'm going well, yourself? Yeah, pretty good, thank you. That's the way. Alright, so um, this episode we're going to be looking at Through Publications, the Australian publisher of the fandom and the world's longest um, fandom publisher. But we, before we get to that, um, I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who's sent feedback in on the last couple of issues, ah, sorry, last couple of episodes. Um, the most feedback we received was suggesting that we add um, segments to the show, so a segment for news, um, the regular segment of the topic we're covering, and then um, a segment talking about you know, new issues that we've read and stuff like that. So we'll be trying that uh, this episode, so please let us know what you think. Okay, so the first segment that we'll be looking at is the Phantom News. So there's been a fair bit of news um, since the last episode. Um, The most recent is a rather interesting comment um, from Jeff Parker, the writer of the new King's Watch series. Um, He did an interview with Comic Book Resources, and in that interview uh, he said the following... The Phantom is not Kit Walker, or at least not literally, beyond being the ghost who walks. He play heavily with his role as a legacy hero. Now, I'm not really sure what he's getting at there, but it sounds like that he's he's not going to be Kitrid Walker from The Last Phantom, but he may not actually be a member of the Walker line, um, which would be a bit of a cog in the works. What do you reckon about that, Jermaine? Did you, check, did you see that on the site? Yeah, I did see that. Um, to be honest, I'm not really sure what to make of it either. Um, is it is he talking about it's not going to be the one that we know as the 21st or um, uh, or as even yeah, the Kitridge one, or is it someone outside of the family like you suggested? Or um, We know it's a male because he's got facial hair, so, um, <laughs> so we know it's not. We know it's not Heloise. Um, yeah, pretty much yeah, woman. Yeah, um, I don't really, can't really put much more into that either. No, it's, it's interesting because he's already pretty much said that it's not going to be Kittredge um, in our interview we had with him. Yeah. But, yeah, I think maybe you're, you're right in that he means it's not the Phantom we know currently, so it could be... Because um, in the 
Phantom of the Earth series, I think it was the 28th Phantom, I think. Um, it did As, give the, yeah. Yeah, it did, it does give the number in the credits. It says the Phantom in this show is the, and whatever generation is. I think it's 28 off the top of my head, but I could be wrong. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is, um, possible that it's, it just means it's not the 21st, but, it would be very interesting for someone completely outside of the Phantom line. That would be, yeah, I think that would upset a few people. But And I think rightly so, to be honest, because the legacy is something that makes the, um, the Phantom what he is. Mm. Um, what, a, what about, though, if it was Rex? Because technically he's outside the line, but he is the Phantom's adopted son, so... Yeah... I know that was a, a source of a debate as well, but I still, I don't know, like the legacy of the fandom is that it's, you know, generation passed on to generation. Now, you can argue if it's son to son or generation to generation, but, um, and I think even Lee Fork in his stories, he hinted that it wasn't going to be Rex. Um, yeah. So... Well, he went off and know. became king, too, so... Yeah. Um, now, there, there has been examples where people have filled in for the Phantom. Um, and I think in the interview, he talks about how the Phantom is disillusioned or something like that. So maybe someone fills in for a period of time. Yeah, that's possible. Um now I just looked on the Phantom Wiki site and the Defenders uh the Defenders of the Earth Phantom is the twenty seventh one. Twenty seventh, I was one off. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well um we've only got a month or a bit un- under a month to find out what's going on because it comes out in September. Um I'm not sure of the exact release date, but it's definitely next month sometime, unless it gets delayed, which you know, with comics is always possible. But um yeah, we'll find out soon. So the next bit of news, which when I posted this um, this next piece of news on the site, we got more hits than um, anything except for, I think, Lindsay's uh, interview last year for Wear It Purple Day, and that's the news that Phantom 2040 or Phantom 2040, however you want to say it, is finally coming to DVD after however many, I think 96 it came out, so... Over 10 years of fan, fans wanting to see that on DVD, it's finally getting a full release. Not just that movie, but the actual whole series. And, two um, seasons. Yeah, two, two seasons. Uh, and at the moment, the release date is scheduled for November 6th. Now, this is an Australian-only release as far as we know. November 6th is the Australian release for it, but I'm sure that there'll be stores you can um, import it from and stuff if you don't live in, in Australia. So, I for one am extremely excited about this because if people have been around Chronicle Chamber for a while, they'll know I'm a huge 20, 2040 fan. Um, what about yourself, Jermaine? Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, I am. Um, I've got an illegal copy. Um, which I think I think a few of us have got that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is very bad quality, as you expect, and I know there's some... Uh, versions, episodes floating on YouTube as well, so it will be good to watch the whole uh, the whole two seasons again. Um, it's a pity it ended the way it did. I would have really liked it to, um, uh, I guess, to actually finish the storyline instead of yeah. just leaving it float 
in the in the middle of you know, and it started really getting interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, that seems to happen to to animated series as soon as you know the the company, whoever it might be, that's put up the money for it, thinks it's you know not making the cash it should have, then they scrap it straight away. Yeah. But yes, it's very exciting that it's finally coming out. Um, so the next bit of news we have is Lee Falk finally entering the Eisner Hall of Fame. Now, for those that may not know or didn't see the um, the news report on the website, the Eisner Awards are named after Will Eisner, who was a comic creator um, and actually a contemporary of Lee Falk, who is basically um, given the uh, thought of as being the father of modern comics. Um, he created The Spirit. Uh, which he's probably best known for, as well as many others. Um, it's kind of like the, what would you say, the, um, what are those, film awards? The Academy Awards. The Academy Awards for comics is is a good analogy for the Eisners. Um, Lee Falk was originally nominated for the Hall of Fame last year um, and didn't get in for whatever reason. But this year he finally did get accepted into the Hall of Fame at um, San Diego Comic-Con this year on July 19th. I think you could agree, Jermaine, that it's about bloody time he was accepted into that. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Because um, even though Eisner might have invented or is accredited with inventing the modern comic book, I think it's safe to say that Lee Falk had at least a hand in inventing the modern superhero with so many yeah. heroes taking after the Phantom. Definitely. Um, I guess it's better late than never, and um, I guess it, it, it is good to see that he actually that it actually did happen. Um, but yeah, probably a little bit too late. But no, it's 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 uh, nice to see. Yeah, very good. Um, so, do you have any news that you'd like to mention, Jermaine? Um, well, there was the uh, this, the opening of the exhibition down in Melbourne with um, a fan fan opening up. I think his name was Matt. Um, so that was opened on Friday the uh, yesterday, which makes it the 24th, I think it was. No, it's Friday, so that would have been Friday the 23rd. Um, so from reports that I've seen on Facebook, that seems to be that seemed to be fairly successful. Um, there has been a few new publications um, coming out in the last couple of months as well. Uh, there's been um, one from uh, an Indian company. Uh, there's been one in uh, Turkey, and they've I think they're on their second or third public, uh, book in the publication series. And there's also been one in Turkey as well. So uh, no Brazil, sorry, which was uh, released probably about a week or two ago. Okay, so is is the Turkish one the only one that's ongoing, or are the others ongoing as well? Um. I believe the Indian one's ongoing. Like the second issue's already been, um, uh, like the previews or the comic preview and all that. The cover preview's already been out. Mm-hmm. Um, unsure about the Brazil one. Um, it basically it features uh, the Sky Band and the Return of the Sky Band. Um, so it's kind of like compiles those two stories together. Um, I think it's about 130 pages. Uh, and then the Turkey ones, I think, are ongoing, and then they're just uh, reruns of the dailies and Sunday stories. Oh, okay. Cool. 
I've been a been a bit slack. I haven't got details of those up on the website yet, but I'll I'll try and get that up. Uh, cool. Well, that's um that's good for fans in those countries. I finally have something to read because I know for those countries they've been a bit sparse on fandom material for a while now. Yeah. Um, and then Bradford Exchange has uh, released the Villains Gallery, um, uh, which is six prints of uh, some Glenn Ford designs um, featuring villains from the Phantom's past. Um, now, there has been a bit of a sneak peek going on on the various Facebooks, and also um, we got to see it at the Phantom Dinner earlier on this year as well. Yeah, some of those um, some of those artworks are up on our um, reporting of the dinner on the on the Chronicle Chamber website. I believe those artworks were also used in part on the knives that Bradford released. Um, yeah, I think the knives, and then with the gold watch, there was also a uh, a card series featuring the six as well. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so the six for just for people that aren't aware is uh, issue one or or number one is Phantom and Sala. Um, now, a lot of the guys will enjoy that one. <laughs> um, issue two is uh, Battling the Sing Pirates. Uh, issue three is General uh, Bababu. Um, and then we've got The Python as number four. And then we've got uh, Redbeard in number five. And then number six is The Vampires of Kukana, or however you want to pronounce that. Now, personally, the vampires is actually my favourite. Yeah, mine too. It, it, the way it comes up, just with the dark, like with the black, just it just looks, it really looks nice. It does. Do you know if those are um, available singly? Were you able to buy those individually, or do you have to get the series? Because they have a subscription-based thing, don't they? Yeah, so uh, with Bradford, basically, you give them their credit card, you give, you know, you sign up for it, and then they, um, like the medallions, where, for yep. instance, um, you know, they take money out of your credit card and they'll send you issue one, issue two, and stuff like that. I'm not sure if you can buy them individually. Um, I'm sure they'll probably maybe look at that if they don't sell them out, but yeah. I'm sure they would prefer to sell them all rather than just having. Um, you know, bits and pieces left over at the end. Yeah, you, you're probably right in that. However, with artworks, you'd think it would make sense to have both options because unlike something um, like the Medallions, which you mentioned, which actually kind of tells a progressive story and the origin of Phantom, with artworks, you know, people tend to like, you know, maybe just one or two and don't want to get yeah. the whole set. And they mightn't have room on their wall to put up six or seven. Um, and the that's artwork. a great problem to have as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. I have quite a few pictures that I don't have, don't have the room for. But anyway, so any other news, or is that it for the moment? Uh, that's about all that right I can yeah. think of at the moment. Okay, well, let's get on to our main topic then. Okay, so our main topic for this episode is looking at Fru Publications and the history of the company. So um, Fru has been going for quite a long time, as those um, living in Australia will know. Um, so we're going to go through the history here and talk about some stuff that Fru has done over the years. 
Uh, Australian fans may know some, if not all of this, but hopefully for the international fans, they'll get, they'll get a bit of information, um, about a publisher that they may not have been exposed to. So, uh, Free was created in 1948 when businessmen Ron Forsyth, John Richardson, uh, sorry, Jim Richardson, Jack Eisen and Peter Watson each put in a hundred Australian pounds to fund their own publication house. Uh, they used the first letter of each of the men's last names to form the company name. Um, so obviously you've got the F for Forsyth, R for Richardson, E for Eisen, um, and W for Watson. So it wasn't long after the um, formation of the publishing house that Eisen and Watson left the company. Um, I haven't been able to find any reason as to why they left, but probably just to uh, follow other endeavours. Um, so Forsyth and Richardson ran the publishing house for the next 40 years. 40 years, sorry. Um, the Phantom was the first comic that Fruit published, uh, with the first issue hitting the stands on the 9th of September, 1948. So it's been going for quite a while. Uh, Fru had to agree to publish their, is, uh, their issues a good time after the stories that they contained appeared in the Australian Woman's Mirror, which was kind of like the 1940 um, equivalent of the Women's Day. Uh, the Woman's Mirror was the first Australian publication to feature Phantom Strips. Um, so obviously they didn't want Fru sort of releasing their issues with the same stories in them. However, the Woman's Mirror did promote Fru's comic in their magazine, which is interesting. Um, mm. woman's, the first Woman's Mirror issue was released on the 1st of September, 1936, so a few years before Fru started publishing. Um, Fru's first two Phantom issues were unnumbered. Presumably this is because Fru was uncertain how successful the book would be, um, but as we know, it was extremely successful. Uh, in the early days, Fru also liked to change the titles of the stories it published. For example, the first issue contained the story The Slave Traders, but Fru changed the title to Enter the Phantom, which, you know, is probably a more dramatic title for a debate, ah, sorry, debut issue anyway. Um, but they've done that not so much now, but in the early days, Fru did do that a fair bit where they changed titles of stories, which, um, made it a little bit confusing when people were going back and trying to figure out what stories had been published and what hadn't. Uh, so, skipping to 1945, this, um, in my research, I found very interesting. Uh, in 1945, the Australian comics um, industry began to come over, uh, under, sorry, a lot of scrutinisation by the Australian government. So, at the same time, uh, in America... A uh, psychiatrist by the name of Fred, Frederick Wortham released a book called Seduction of the Innocent. Now, Frederick Wortham believed that reading comics led to juvenile delinquency. Um, so popular and so um, promoted was his opinions that it actually led the U.S. Senate to form a committee that looked into the connection between juvenile delinquency and um the reading of comic books, and out of that came the Comics Code Authority. Now, readers that um, I may may not be into American comics or that are a bit younger, haven't been reading comics um, for longer than 10, 15 years, may not know what the Comics Code Authority is. Basically, it was a self-governing body um, by the U.S. comic industry that 
censored anything evil or they felt was evil or um, untoward in comics. So horror comics and crime comics particularly were hit. Um, you weren't allowed to use the words terror, um, horror, and there was a third one which I can't remember which it was in the title of any comic. Um, there was lots and lots of really silly changes. So it's interesting that while that was happening in America, the Australian government was also looking at our own comics industry. And whether the two things were related or not is uncertain, but we do know that the um, juvenile delinquency trials was um, made did make the news here in Australia. So maybe the, the government saw what was happening in America and thought, oh, we better check this out. But at any rate, Fru was not, um, was not above this, above this scrutinization. So the first fandom strip that Fru published to be, uh, censored was, um, The Return of the Sky Band, which appeared in issues 74 and 75. And it was censored for violence, removing gunshot smoke, of all things, um, from panels. And also, it changed images of people that were shown originally to be falling after being shot to still have their feet planted on the ground. Now, that, as you, as you can tell by those two examples, it kind of seems a silly thing to, to edit. Why not just remove the scene of someone getting shot altogether? But this is how the thing worked. So after that, there were several other stories that were edited. Um, the Singh Brotherhood, The Slave Traders, uh, Lager, The Late God, and many others for violence, um, presumed sexual um, reasons. So if Diana or Salah were wearing a skimpy dress, the art was inked over, so you couldn't see their thighs. Um, things that we laugh at now, but back in the day, they thought this would turn the kids into hoodlums. Um, however, to come out of that, this censorship led to the production of um, complete printings of these stories um, and through history later on after Jim Shepard took over. So I suppose in a way, uh, something good came out of it. And the most famous of those completed printings would probably be The Phantom Goes to War, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, so is there any... Anything you want to add at the moment, Jermaine, before we um, go on? Probably the censorship. Like, I, I remember, um, uh, like, when the fandom was put in an anthill. Uh, oh, that yes. was interesting. Um, and then there was also, I think it was the seahorse where um, Diana was tied to the front of a cannon. Yep. Um, which is quite, you know, when you think about it, especially from the 40s and 50s, it's quite... Uh, quite dramatic. Dramatic even to today's standards. So um, mm -hmm. I can, you know, you can kind of understand a little bit why they kind of censor that out because it's not every day you want to see someone getting, um, you know, their head blown off by a cannon. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I remember, um, you know, Phantom Goes to War as well. There was a scene where the Japanese general slaps Diana, but um, in the original printing it was changed to he was just shaking his fist at her, I think. Yeah, um, exactly. And I think there was another scene where he kicks the Phantom in the head with his boot, but in the um, the original printing, it was just made to look as if he was threatening to do it, so the foot was kind of hovering over the Phantom's face. I know in um, uh, in the first uh, comic, uh, the first story, the Sing Brotherhood, um, Sala, if you look at it towards the end of the story, she's wearing 
And it's even in today's printing slider herms and the ones that Fru do, she does a um a close change between between scenes, between panels. Um oh. so it's so it's actually interesting that some of the sense one of the censorship panels has actually still made its way through to the supposedly unedited, uncensored, uncut uh releases. Yeah, well that's interesting because um as it says in, in the research I did they they inked over the the images. So maybe if they did that onto the original artwork, the original image would of course have been lost. So they'd have no choice but to use that censored version of it. Yeah. Because yeah. um of course in the in the thirties and the forties, um, unlike today, comics were seen as discardable media. They were something, you know, you'd read on your way to work and then chuck in the bin. They're not they weren't the big collector's items they were they are today. Well even the art, like I remember um uh, with Alex Savak, he was telling me a story where they were using just the original artwork um, to soak up the pa- uh, the rain that drips through the um, through the roof. So, yeah. you know, you've got all this priceless original artwork that's soaking up, you know, rain rain in the middle of winter or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, so that's probably. Yeah, I remember reading um, a book on the history of of Marvel, and um, it was it said that they had at the Marvel Studios um, they had you know just drawers and drawers full of artwork by all these famous um, Marvel artists, Steve Ditko and people like that. Um, and they went to move their office, and they thought, "What are we going to do with all this artwork? Oh, I don't know. Let's just chuck it out." So they just pulped all this this original artwork, and oh, it's just heartbreaking to think of think of that happening. But that's what the industry was like back then, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, so um, moving on with, with the history of Fru. From 1949 to 1958, Fru published several non-Phantom titles. Uh, these included Popeye, The Phantom Ranger, Catman and others, and they peaked at 30 titles um, released by the company in the mid-1950s. Uh, however, with the introduction of television and, of course, um, U.S. superhero comics coming to Australia in the 60s, sales started to slump for these titles. Um, of the 30 titles that Fru were publishing at the time, only The Phantom continued to be successful. So Fru decided to drop all the other titles they were publishing, and The Phantom became the single comic that they, that they released, which it has remained to this day. So um, in November 1981, Fru published their first Swedish-created fandom adventure, which was entitled The Ghost, and it appeared in issue 731. Um, so the Swedish-created adventures are the reprints of stories that appear in Phantom Men and, and, it's, and the other Swedish books. Um, at the time, the publisher was called Samik, but now they're known as Egmont. Um, I believe Egmont bought Semic out. I think that's that's the story. Are you familiar with that? Yes, yeah. I believe that's correct as well. I think it was in the early 90s. Yeah. Um, so, basically, uh, the, the Swedish company um, thought, well, let's create our own original Phantom stories, which, of course, they did. And the reason Fru decided to start printing these in Australia was... Um, to fill 
the void left by the lack of new Lee Fork stories, because, of course, Lee Fork was writing for the newspaper strip format, which comes out um, once a weekend um, or weekly, depending on, you know, which, which strip he's looking at. So, of course, full stories were not being produced quickly enough for Fruit to then reprint them in um, their full their full capacity in an issue. So to fill in that gap, they decided to look to Egmont and, oh, sorry, Semic at the time, and get the stories they were doing. So what they did is they printed The Ghost, and I think two or three stories um, after that, and then just sat on them for about a year um, to see what the reaction was. And the reaction was more positive than it was negative, though, of course, as with any change in a comic... Um, comic publishing endeavour, there were some hardcore fans that that weren't as as happy with the Swedish stories, but the reaction was positive enough that in January 1983, um, the Semic stories began to make regular appearances. And as we know now, that makes up the bulk of Fru's output. Um, I think think the same people are still unhappy about it as well. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, so in 1987, Forsyth and Richardson, the two of the original creators of Fru, employed um, a mysterious man by the name of Jim Shepard. Uh, originally acting as managing director, by 1995, Jim had bought Forsyth and Richardson's shares in the companies to become the sole owner of Fru Publications, um, which was described by um, Brian Sheridan on his website as a renaissance for Fru, which I think actually is quite a good description of when Jim took over. Definitely. Yeah, he introduced a whole lot of new um, ideas to the company, which which we'll cover soon. So um, Jim's first big uh, venture when he joined Fru uh, was arguably the uncensored, uncensored printing of The Phantom Goes to War in issue 910A, which was released in August 1988. Now, as we've already discussed, a lot of the earlier stories were censored for whatever reason, um, but Jim decided, no, the fans want to see them in their unedited uh, condition, as close to Lee Fork intended them to be read as possible, um, and the Phantom Goes to War printing was the first of many of these. And I think um, by... The late 90s or maybe the early 2000s, Fru had printed the complete version of every Lee Fork story. Um, I do have the date of that somewhere, but I just don't have it up at the moment. Um, so the issue was something of a statement of intent from Jim and Fru, because um, like I said, from that point on, they endeavoured to release as many unedited strips as possible. They also changed, uh, Jim also changed the covers of the Fru issues from the newspaper print, which was the same as the interior of the comic, to glossy cover stock and uh, used um, local artists such as Glenn Ford to create original cover art as well, which was the first for the company. Um, Unfortunately, that practice doesn't continue as much now. We get the odd Antonio Lemos cover, but, but not as much as we did back in the day. Um, in 89, the first Australian-created Phantom Adventure was published by Fru in number 951A, 
entitled Rumble in the Jungle. It was written by Jim Shepard and featured art by Sydney artist Keith Chateau. Um, this was followed by three other Australian-created titles, The Return of the Singh Brotherhood in 962 uh, and The King's Cross, King's Cross Connection in issue 1000, both of which um, had art by Chateau. Uh, Chateau. Um, is it Chateau or Chateau, do you know? Uh, I think it's Chateau, but Chateau. don't quote me on that one. Okay. Um, sadly, uh, Keith Chateau died in 1992. So the final um, original story written by Jim entitled The Search for Byron, which was re- released in 1996, um, featured art by Glenn Ford, and it was issue 1131. So what did you think of those uh, original stories by Jim? Jermaine, did you enjoy um, them? From a nostalgic point of view, yes. <laughs> um, compared to the stuff Lee Falk did or the stuff that was coming from um, Semiac and Egmont, they were very, very below par, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, to be frank. The original one, the uh, Rumble in the Jungle, that definitely had the, uh, like a, that had probably more of a nostalgic uh, feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that was know. republished recently um, as a yes. to Jim after he passed away. Yeah, so I think it's the third time it's been published now in a free comic. Yeah, I think um, you're right. So, yeah. Um, King's Cross Connection was ho-ho, ho, you know, yeah, yeah. Return of the Sin Brotherhood, again, was so-so. Um, Search for Brian was probably the second favourite out of the four. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find some of the printing uh, a little bit interesting. Um, it's like, uh, and I haven't, I haven't discussed this with Glenn Ford or even Jim or anything like that, but it seemed that... Um, uh, some of the layout and the printing didn't really match too well, so um, it was it looked a little bit yeah I don't know yeah. just didn't seem to flow as nice and like you had kind of panels like that didn't really fit together or something, but it might have just been me, but I kind of got <laughs> a feeling that um uh, yeah there was that it didn't really flow too nicely. Fair enough. It's interesting you mentioned the panels because um, Search for Byron is probably by far my favourite of those those stories. But the thing that really impacted me when I read it, and of course in '96, um, was, was when I not not had just got into um, reading comics, but it was when I sort of decided to start collecting them quite seriously. Um, and of course, I was you know into heavily into art, I decided that's what I wanted to do um, with my life at that point. Um, so the artwork was the, the biggest thing for me about that issue, and I just remember looking at it, and I hadn't started reading American comics at that time, and they Glenn Ford would just have these huge open panels and very bold artwork and strong artwork, and you hadn't really seen that up to that point, even in the Swedish stories, um, in, in the Phantom, because it was more, uh, not, not exactly an American style, but it was more towards that, but still had a very Australian flavour to it. And I just remember being absolutely blown away by this amazing artwork. I remember there's, um, a scene where Phantom's trying to, I don't know, get information out of some, some 
villagers or he's threatening them in some way anyway and he shoots um, a bowl of fruit and while that doesn't sound like you know an amazing scene the way Glenn's drawn it in this big long panel that stretches the whole page and it's got very um, dynamic foreshortening going on it was just it was just amazing it blew my 12 11 year old mind at the time anyway and that, that so that issue was always stuck with me for that for that reason um, I liked what I liked about it was um, there was definitely a I don't but I think it was the cover like there was that that computer type yeah. of element with it um, and I know with his covers Glenn Ford's definitely um, who was like one of the first ones to kind of do computer generated mm-hmm. covers yep um, like even before Semiac like that was still an Egmont that was still going towards um, you know the painted covers, mm-hmm. but um, that, I, I I personally like that. I like the um, the, the computer generated style covers f- from the you know the mid to late nineties. Yeah, well, um, the Phantom Goes to War was actually reprinted in issue um, one thousand and forty one, which featured a CG created cover by Glenn, and it is absolutely beautiful. It's um, got a big picture of the Phantom on the front. And it's it looks like he's taking a photo, taking a photo of an actual person, and then kind of CG'd the cover, uh, sorry, the costume over the person that he's photographed. So it looks extremely realistic. And then in the background, you've got these actual stock photos of um, the the Wartong countryside, and Glenn has illustrated the Phantom into them. And it's just oh, it's amazing. I'd love to get that as a poster. Um, so issue 1041, if you've got that in the in collection, pull it out and have a look at that amazing cover. Or if you don't, try Googling it. You might be able to find it on the net somewhere. But it is an amazing cover. So, yes, you're right about the the computer-generated stuff. Um, but we're getting a bit, bit off track there. Sorry. <laughs> Ian, geeking out about art. Okay, so... Where were we? Oh, yes. So, um, in 19... Oh, no, we've, we've just done that, sorry. In 1991, Fru reached its milestone of the 1,000th issue, uh, which, to celebrate that milestone, they released a giant uh, issue that was about 320 pages long, I believe, um, which included a lot of uh, stories in the one issue, and it was the first of what are now called the blockbuster issues, which um, Fru has released every year since. Um, a little bit of confusion uh, was around that 1,000th issue, though, because it was actually numbered issue 972. Now, the reason it's the 1,000th... Oh, I'm lisping now. Um, the 1,000th issue is because um, due to an error, issue 330 was never actually published, um, and there were 29... Uh, a issues or unnumbered issues. Obviously, the unnumbered issues, it was just due to a simple error or like the first two issues that Fru produced, they didn't number those because they didn't know how successful the book was going to be. Um, the A issues, for those that don't know, were basically special issues. So you had, um, like the Phantom Goes to War, you had issue 910, which was just a regular issue, and then you had 910A, which was the special um, printing of the uncensored Phantom Ghost to War story. So with the 29 uh, unnumbered or eight issues, minus one issue that was never printed, um, plus 972 equals 
1000. So it was actually the 1000th issue published, but not issue 1000. However, issue 1000 did um, come out the following year, which, fe- which featured, again, um, an amazing cover by Glenn Ford, which was also comp- computer-generated. Wow, I'm really stuffing up with the <laughs> speech problems this episode. Sorry, people. I do apologise. Um, so skip now to 1998, and on the 9th of September, through celebrated their 50th year of continuous publishing of The Phantom. Uh, the occasion was celebrated with a special 212-page issue, which in a first for through featured a cover interior, even though it was only the first 16 pages. Um, a separate book, which was uh, 44 pages in length, uh, was the Through Publishing Index, which um, detailed every fandom story published by Through up to that point. And it's now quite the collective item, I believe. Um, skip again to 2000, 2006 with issue 1438, and Fru celebrated the, uh, the Phantom's 70th birthday with a special issue featuring all Fork, Lee Fork stories. The issue also came with a bonus book entitled A Tribute to Lee Fork, um, which was written by Jim and was basically about the life and times of the creator of the Phantom. Uh, 2007 saw the release of the 1500th issue, uh, published by Fru. This issue came with the first edition of the Phantom Encyclopedia, which, as the name suggests, um, aimed to detail all things related to the Phantom. Uh, however, the importance of this event was overshadowed by a rather negative reaction from fans because with the um, 1500th issue, one would expect it to be quite the celebration and the issue had the feeling of being almost slapped together. Um, the, the cover, well, basically it didn't have a cover. It was just um, just basically a sort of bluey color with 1500, 1500th issue written on it, and that was it. There was not even any artwork on there. Um, so that, coupled with the... Um, uh, sorry, with the 16th... Um, sorry, the 17th birthday issue, uh, which had a similar cover, um, I think it upset a few fans who were feeling that maybe Fru didn't really put the effort into these issues that they should have. Do you remember the hullabaloo that came out with those issues, Joe? Uh, yeah, I was probably one, I was probably one of the more vocal ones, to be honest. Yeah, that makes um, sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you look at like um. I'm in my room now and I've got my comics displayed. Like, you look at the number 1,000, you look at the, um, you know, the 1,000th issue, and then you look at the 1,700 or some of these other big issues, it's, I don't know, it's like, yeah, I think slapped together is a very um, apt way of putting it. Yeah, and even the um, the annuals, the blockbuster issues before that, that weren't anything... Special. They weren't celebrating any sort of events like these issues were. Still had really nice covers. Like, yes, they might have been, you know, artwork scanned from an existing story or something, but they were still put together with obvious care and um, 
the artwork was nice, but these, to not even feature any artwork at all, mm. I, I think it was quite the slap in the face for um, for fans, because I remember even months and months before, you know, these milestones happened, fans were thinking, oh, what's Fru going to do? You know, this is going to be you know, a big issue. It's going to be great. We're going to have a great celebration. And then we sort of get this, like I say, slap together presentation. It was quite... I think I think the reason for the um for the backlash was that a lot of fans felt maybe insulted or um let I think down. betrayed. Betrayed, yeah, that's that's the word I'm looking for. That's the um, word I'm Yeah, I, I, I guess you know yeah, I, I think you're saying it very well. I, I, it was just like I don't know. The the quality, the care just didn't seem to be there as what it mm-hmm. once was. And I think that's probably um, a good key to probably go into the other discussion um, about the quality and and, and, and stuff where the, where the quality has kind of fallen probably from the mid-90s, I would say, or the late-90s. Yes, yeah, I'd agree. Um, Lindsay and I briefly touched on this in our first episode but um it has felt that the last couple of years uh Fru's quality has has fallen um it's been no secret that for a long time they've used just scanned panels from um the stories to create their artwork and they just scan the panel and or a few panels and sort of play around with it in photoshop to try and get the composition to look all right and then add color to it which, you know, is all fine and good if you do a good job. But lately, even that process seems to have been, oh, yeah, we'll just use this and that'll do. It, it's not got good composition or anything. Even the colouring's pretty dodgy. Yeah. Um, I, I think from discussions that I've had, the colouring is not um solely up to free. I think a lot of it's got to do with actual publisher. Now maybe oh, okay. I may have that wrong. Um but I think that the the printers or the, the have a fair bit to do with the colours. Oh. But I don't think that can be you know, I don't think we can lay the blame on them when it comes to the cho- the choice of the um panels. Like no. I have I don't have a problem with using you know, computer-generated covers from an inside panel. Um, but a lot of the time, it's the wrong panel. Exactly. Um, you know, like, you, you look through, you can look through the comic, and you can go, you can usually pick three or four different, you know, or similar um, similar panels or different panels that would have that would have had more of an impact. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, you know, you, you as an artist would know that, everyone judges a a comic or a book by its cover Mm -hmm. Um, and so you want a cover that is going to stand out from other comics from other magazines and stuff like that Um, so yeah so uh, there's that Uh, another bugbear of mine is the fuzzy reproductions of the inside panels yes Um, that's probably my biggest complaint is probably the inside fuzziness of the print. Yeah, the, the cover's one thing, but if you can't even read the issue <laughs> when you open yeah. it. Because 
you know, like, I've thought about some of it because most of the time it seems to be doing with um, either the free comics or re, uh, reprinting of, um, you know, the the Egmont stories or something. So they tend to be the reprints that they stuff up most of them with. So yes. for me, if I want to read the comic, I can just, you know, find it in another free comic. But for a lot of people who are, you know, new um, new readers or, you know, don't have a free collection going back to the 900s or something like that, or even, you know, uh, earlier, it's the first time they're ever going to read the story. Um mm-hmm. And and you're right. It's it's a bit hard to read the story when it's all over the place. Exactly. And and sales for all kinds of media are sold or lost on on the cover. And to have a subpar cover is is just silliness, especially in today's market where there are so many things um, vying for people's money and attention. Um, I think part of the problem is that Fru have found that their audience, the people that buy the Phantom, um, the largest portion of that audience anyway, are people between the ages of 25 to 40. And I think um, they've kind of gone, oh, well, if they're 25 to 40, they don't really care about spending the 350 on the issue. They know the character. They like the character, so that'll do. But the problem is... What happens when those people stop reading the, the comic due to, you know, sad to say, but due to passing away or just, you know, stop buying them? Um, where's your younger audience going to come through? Where's the new readers going to come from if you're not grabbing their attention? And that's something that really, really bothers me because the fandom's been going for so long now, it would be horrible for him to just suddenly disappear because... The, the publication hasn't kept up with, um, I suppose, the standard that is expected of comics now. Like, you look at look at Marvel and DC, um, and they are sold at newsagents, put next to the Phantom, and even Archie's comics, which are um, aimed at kids, the covers look amazing. And, of course, this is comparing it to Fruit, but the covers look amazing. And the Phantom just doesn't compare to it. And it's, it's just, I find it really sad. As a lifelong Phantom fan, it's something that really upsets me. Um, but this is getting on my soapbox a bit. <laughs> well, what's actually interesting is um, uh, I read somewhere, again, um, uh, if I need correction, please someone let me know, but I read somewhere that the Egmont uh, publication over in you know Sweden and Norway is actually aimed at the teenagers, at the 12 to 14 type of age bracket. Yeah, I've um, read that too. So it's interesting that through aims at the 25 plus, um, where you know Egmont aims at the the next generation. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess now they you know they do do the you know little free little giveaways. Um, I've got a comic here in front of me that's got like a, a little hologram. Uh, skull on the front cover, um, you know, and then there's, you know, and they have painted covers. They have uh, um, the normal covers and stuff like that. So it's interesting that they do, they are a little bit more gimmicky um, mm. in their sales. Now, I don't know what the sales are like for um, for Egmont, and I, you know, don't really know the sales for Frew either, but it would be interesting to know what, you know, comparing the sales together. Yes, yeah, it would be interesting. And and even it's interesting you mentioned that age 
thing because um, I know with with American comics, with your Marvel and your DC, and even even your Image and um, more independent publishers, the reading age for those is anywhere from more well, for Marvel and DC, it's anywhere from about thirteen, fourteen up. For the more independent titles, it's generally a little bit older, so anywhere from maybe eighteen and up. So they're vying for a huge market, but yet they're still producing covers, covers that will appeal to anyone. So that's why their comics are still being successful, and that's why, you know, you talk as a teacher. I'm in schools all the time talking to uh, younger kids. Um, the youngest students I have are around 12, and you mentioned Spider-Man and Batman, and you know those guys. And of course, they know them either a from the movies or cartoons, but they still know they're a comic character. You mentioned the Phantom, and it's about 60% kind of have an idea who he is, and generally it's, oh, that's the dude in purple. So while the um, the knowledge of the Phantom being around is there, they've got no impulse to go and read the comic. Now, if you want to get the kids in, you're going to have to make the cover eye-catching to them, because if they look at this amazing, you know, I don't know, George Perez Spider-Man cover compared to these dodgy-looking Phantom books, which one do you think they're going to spend their money on? I think a lot of it's also got to do with the the movies, like um, when the Phantom movie came out in 96. Now, you know, we won't won't debate whether it was a good movie or whether it (laughs) wasn't. Um, But there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of merchandise with it as Mm -hmm. well. Um, and then I read somewhere that the sales around that period were about 60,000 issues um, for a free comic. Every issue was selling about 60,000 copies. Um, and that's literally, you know, pretty much just in Australia because yeah. um, back in 96, you know, the internet wasn't too big, so uh, subscriptions overseas wouldn't have been that big either. So, you know, I kind of get the feeling that there was... All right, it was a, let's be honest, it was a subpar movie compared to, you know, what we see in Batman and, and stuff like that today. But that did give it, that did give the free comic a really good shot in the art. Yeah, you're right. And, and, then, and everyone was reading fan comics. Yeah, and, and you do raise a good point. The, the American heroes do have a, a, a better exposure, I guess, because of the movies and things like that. But, um, Kind of my point is that if a kid enjoys Batman or Superman or whatever movie and they go to the newsagent and they're looking at these comics and they go, oh, yeah, there's a Batman, there's a Superman, but maybe I'll try something else as well, and the Phantom's there and they see that cover, they're going to go, well, that looks a bit rubbish, I'm not even going to bother. So the point I'm kind of make is while the kids might be going initially to buy your Superman or whatever comic um, because of the movie they've just seen, if they see the Phantom there and it's this really nice eye-catching cover, there's more of a chance they're going to pick it up and read it and go, oh, this this character is actually really cool. And I, I don't know, maybe this is just me, and and this is <laughs> something that I know a, a couple other people do. If you're a comic fan, whether you've gotten into it from movies or whatever, and you're reading a character that there hasn't been a movie of or there hasn't been a movie on of for a long time or not many people are into it, you, you kind of feel this this very strong connection to it. And I think that that's missing. But, you know, we could debate this for hours, so we should probably move on. Yeah, definitely. But if there's any final points you'd like to make on the 
on the co- covers there. Jermaine, please feel free. Um, covers or just in the quality in, in general? Oh, just in the quality in general. But we'll probably um, come back to that a little bit. Uh, anyway. Okay. All right, we'll come back to that one. Okay. All right, well... Um, Pause. So the final point that we have to make here in the history of Frew is unfortunately a sad one, which is the passing of Jim Shepherd at the age of 80 in April this year. Um, but of course he leaves behind him a legacy of publishing of one of the, um, one of the most successful comic book titles in the world. Um, yes, we might have just talked about the negatives of the company, but that's only in the last, what, 10 years maybe at the most? I would um, probably go maybe 15. Maybe 15, but still that's a very small chunk out of the history of a company that started in 1948. Um, so Fru have done an absolutely amazing job to continue for as long as they have, and um, I'd be very surprised if there's um, any other publisher, especially any other comic publisher, that has lasted that long. So while some of us may feel that the Fru publications are lost a bit towards the end of their run, well, not the end of their run, obviously, because they haven't finished, but in more recent times, there's definitely a huge legacy there that will remain very important to the history of the fandom and Australian comics in general, I think. So that kind of wraps up our look at the history of Fruit. Um, just before we move on, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to all the uh, resources um, that I use to find information on this. So you've got um, Brian Sheridan's deepwoods.org website, which is a brilliant website for um, reference information on the history of the Phantom, if, if anybody listening is interested in, in that sort of thing. Um, the Phantom Wiki, of course, which you can find a link to on the Chronicle Chamber site, um, which is done by the uh, Swedish chapter of the Lee Fork Bengala Explorers Club. Those guys have done uh, a brilliant job. Um, also, the Tencent Plague book by David Hajdu, I think is how his last name is pronounced. Uh, that book is about the Frederick Wortham um, Comics Code Authority uh, thing that happened in the US. So if you're interested in the history of US comics, then that's definitely worth checking out. And also, um, and I was very excited when I found this, Kevin Patrick's paper, A Design for Depravity. Um, you may remember Kevin Patrick is the guy that wrote his thesis on the Phantom recently. So... While I was Googling, I found another one of his papers, and that helped out in the research a lot as well. Okay, folks, clocking in at about an hour, I reckon that'll do us for this first part of our look at Fru publications. Please be sure to join us for part two, which should be up on the site in a couple of days' time.